Would you stand with me now uh, for the reading of God's Word? Psalm 72. Give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. May he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. Let the mountains bear prosperity for the people and the hills in righteousness. May he defend the cause of the poor people. Or the, excuse me, the poor of the people. Give deliverance to the children of the needy and crush the oppressor. May they fear you while the sun endures and as long as the moon throughout all generations. May he be like the rain that falls on the mown grass, like showers that water the earth. In his days, may the righteousness flourish and peace abound till the moon be no more. May he have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. May desert tribes bow down before him and his enemies lick the dust. May the kings of Tarshish and of the coastlands render him tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts. May all kings fall down before him and all nations serve him. For he delivers the needy when he calls the poor and him who has no helper. He has pity on the weak and the needy and saves the lives of the needy. From oppression and violence he redeems their life and precious is their blood in his sight. Long may he live, may gold of Sheba be given to him, may prayer be made for him continually, and blessings evoked, invoked for, all, for him all the day. May there be abundance of grain in the land, on the tops of the mountains may it wave. May its fruits be like Lebanon, and may people blossom in the cities like the grass of the field. May his name endure forever. His fame continues as long as the sun. May people be blessed in him. All nations call him blessed. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. Blessed be his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. The prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for your word. I thank you for how it brings life to our weary souls. Uh, this text is certainly challenging, and I pray that you would give us eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts to understand, would we be receptive to what you have for us. I pray that for myself and for everyone that's here today. Speak to us through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. I am hearing a little song, which is kind of cool. It's like background music, but uh, I'm wondering if someone from the band, I don't know if it, I don't think it's me. I think I've got some music coming here. So if someone come from the band could c kill that, that would be awesome. Oh, is it, it's there? So maybe we can, while I'm going, maybe we can have a little conference uh, about how we can kill that. So, sorry. It's, it's going to get me. I'm, I'm, I'm too ADD. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I think it's here. I think it's Peavy. It's picking up the radio. Okay. Sorry, guys. All right. 
Oh. Yeah, all right, thank you, Herb. That's, that's her winner right there. Awesome, okay. Here we go, amen. Um, all right, so we just read Psalm 72. I want to begin by taking you back in time a little bit. I can vividly remember uh, November 4th, 2008. I'm sure some of you can as well. Um, I was actually living in Durham. Uh, I was living in a, town, a neighborhood called Walltown on the west side of town, um, working for a neighborhood ministry called Urban Hope. Uh, and I lived in a house right in the heart of, of the neighborhood, a few doors down from the historic St. John's Missionary Baptist Church, where my wife and I attended worship. Uh, and for those of you who don't know, Walltown is one of the most historic African-American communities in Durham. Uh, not quite as historic as Haiti, but certainly has a rich history uh, and in 2008, uh, it was still a predominantly African-American community, although that's rapidly changing. And on the night of November 4, 2008, uh, there was this celebration like I'd never seen before. Uh, there was uh, literally dancing in the street. There was shouting out. People were riding around in their cars. They were honking their horns, giving hugs, high-fiving, even some tears being shed. Because on November 4, 2008, Barack Obama secured the presidency of the United States of America. But why, why was Walltown, of all places, so excited and celebrating this event? Uh, there's certainly a multitude of reasons, but one of the reasons why this community was so excited is because they understood this foundational truth that undergirds our text this morning, Psalm 72. And that truth is that it matters who's in charge. It matters who's the boss. Amen? Amen? It really matters. The President of the United States is one of the most powerful people in the entire world. It's hard to argue that point. And the things that he says and does, they have an impact on our day-to-day -day life. They just do. And in light of these truths, the Walltown community was celebrating on November 4th, 2008, because they believed that the king that had just been crowned had their best interests in mind. They believed that Barack Obama would rule in such a way to bring blessings into their lives. Our text this morning is about a king and his kingdom. But this is no ordinary king here. This is the kind of king whose rule and reign would motivate a celebration that would blow our minds, that would knock the socks off of 2008 Walltown. This is the kind of king that would establish a kingdom that would bring blessing and flourishing to all people who sit under his rule. And so as we begin to dive in, I want to highlight three main points from our text. First, the characteristics of God's kingdom. Secondly, the characters in God's kingdom. And lastly, the work of consummating God's kingdom. So let's begin. The characteristics of God's kingdom. As we mentioned before, it's, it's incredibly important who's in charge, who's the boss. A kingdom will derive its character from its king. Amen? And our text this morning is written by a king, by King Solomon. And he was David's son, successor to the throne of Israel. And at first glance, it appears that our text is, a, is, about, is about King Solomon, that he is is writing about himself, that he's asking God to bless him and his kingdom. 
However, the tense, and among other things, makes it clear that Solomon is not actually asking for blessing for himself or for his own kingdom. He's asking for another king and another kingdom. Look at verse 1. Solomon says, Give the king, not give me, your justice. Verse 2, May he, not may I, may he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. He's talking about someone else. But if not Solomon, who? Who is this king and what is his kingdom? One of the central themes of the Old Testament is God's promise of immeasurable blessing for his people. We see this over and over and over again throughout the Old Testament. And what we, what we see behind that promise is that that blessing would flow through a Messiah, through an anointed one, through one who is coming to rescue and bless God's people. Or as the Apostle John says, through the King of Kings. Or as we know of him as King Jesus. So this is the theme that's coming throughout the Old Testament. Blessing is coming, and it's coming through King Jesus. And so Solomon, in our text, is crying out to God before Christ comes and saying, God, would you send your king? Would you send the anointed one, the Messiah, and send his kingdom to bless us, your people? So what is this kingdom? What does this kingdom look like? Again, we said uh, that it's, it's going to flow out of the king, flow out of the character of the king. And so our, our text highlights three characteristics of this kingdom that is to come. The first is that it will be eternal. The second is it will be universal. And the third is that, for lack of a better term, it will be redemptive for all. It will be eternal, universal, and redemptive for all. Let's look first at eternal. Look with me in the text at verse 5. And then we'll read verse 17. The text says, May they fear you while the sun endures, and as long as the moon throughout all generations. And then verse 17, May his name endure forever, his fame continue as long as the sun. The text clearly states that this king who is coming is going to establish a kingdom that will never end. It will, be, it will endure forever. And this may be kind of hard for us to wrap our minds around, but the, the ancient Near Eastern kings like Solomon would have dreamed of something like this, but would have known that it was impossible. There was no way that King Solomon's reign was going to last forever. The kings in this time period always lived with the fear of being overthrown. Somebody was going to come in and take over, or they were going to die. Their, their kingdom was not eternal. But Solomon knows that when God sends his king, this king will rule forever and forever and forever. Amen. It's good news. The second thing we see here is that this kingdom that is coming will be universal. Listen to verses 8 through 11. May, we have dominion, may he have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. May desert tribes bow down before him and his enemies lick the dust. May the kings of Tarshish and of the coastlands render him tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts. May all kings fall down before him and all nations serve him. I'm not going to bore you with the geography here, but what Solomon is acknowledging here is that this kingdom is going to spread across the entire earth. There will be no one who will be untouched by this kingdom that is coming. 
God know, Solomon knows that God is promising to bring a king that will have a universal kingdom where all people will bow down before this one true king. That's where we're going. Lastly, and most prominent in the text, is this third characteristic of the kingdom of God's future king, and that his kingdom will be redemptive for all. And this is where we're going to camp out this morning. Look again at verse 1. It says, Give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. The key here is that this kingdom that is coming will have a certain type of king, a king that will rule with the justice and the righteousness of God. Which begs the question, what is the result of that kind of rule? When God's king is on his throne and he rules with righteousness and justice, what is the result for us who live in that kingdom? Look at verse 3, 4, and then 6 and 7. Let the mountains bear prosperity for the people and the hills in righteousness. May he defend the cause of the poor of the people, give deliverance to the children of the needy, and crush the oppressor. Verse 6, may he be like rain that falls on the mown grass, like showers that water the earth. In his days may the righteous flourish and peace abound till the moon be no more. When God's future king comes, there's two things that are going to happen. Prosperity and flourishing will abound for all people, and the least of these will be defended and delivered. So the text is describing, it's painting a picture of what is the result of ruling with righteousness and justice. And I want us to sit here for a second and chew on that. Because I think if we're honest, if somebody were to ask us why did King Jesus come, most of us would probably say he came to save us from our sins. Right? He came to save us from our sins. And brothers and sisters, that is absolutely true. Amen, amen, amen. King Jesus came to save us from our sins. Jesus came and died on the cross for us. He lived the life that we could not live and died the death that we deserve so that we could have a relationship with God. That is good news. That is true. Amen. But what our text seems to be showing us is that King Jesus came possibly to do even more than just that. Do even more than just to save us from our sins. He came so that all of us, even the least of these, might flourish. That's the the kingdom that he is ushering in. And I think the reason that we have such a hard time with this is because we we have often uh, settled into and drunk in this Kool-Aid that is American individualism. We've gotten lost in thinking that uh, the gospel and that God's kingdom is just about me and Jesus. But there's a much larger and grander picture that is being painted here. Listen to verses 12 through 16. For he delivers the needy when he calls, the poor and him who has no helper. He has pity on the weak and the needy. He saves the lives of the needy. From oppression and violence he redeems their life, and precious is their blood in his sight. Long may he live, may gold of Shiva be given to him, may prayer be made for him continually, and blessings invoked for him all the day. May there be an abundance of grain in the land, on the tops of the mountains may it wave. May its fruit be like Lebanon, and may people blossom in the cities like the grass of the field. Brothers and sisters, this this kind of flourishing that is being talked about here in this coming kingdom 
absolutely is, is part of this, this work that King Jesus comes to do, and it starts with the salvation of our souls, but it does not end there. It is so much greater. Jesus' kingdom brings blessing and fulfillment and hope and prosperity for all peoples. Listen to this quote. It's a little bit long, so bear with me from Bob Heppy. He's a longtime missionary in the UK. Uh, I just want to share it with you. I think he has some profound things to say here. We need to recover the grand cosmic significance of Jesus' saving activity that moves the gospel out of the narrow realm of our self-preoccupation. The scope of the gospel is a whole world made new as it is brought under the rule and reign of Christ. We get all worked over how we are doing at living the Christ, at, at, excuse me, at living the Christian life. God has more important and interesting things about which he is concerned, and I believe he would wish we could set aside our preoccupations to become concerned about his. The gospel is God's message of liberation from guilt, alienation, and every bondage that hinders the human race from being fruitful and reflecting the glory of God. The good news that Jesus preached is that he, as Lord of the cosmos, as king, is now in the business of capturing a runaway planet. He came to destroy the works of the devil, all of them, and to bring the whole world under his saving authority. That means he came to reverse the effects of the fall far as the curse is found. The gospel of the kingdom announces nothing less than God's intention and activity to replace the effects of the fall, sin, guilt, sickness, hunger, injustice, oppression, poverty, bondage, dehumanization, and death with his kingdom righteousness, and his work will not be finished until his redemption covers the whole earth. Oh, is that a little bigger, maybe, than what we sometimes sit in, in terms of what Christ has come to do? That's huge. Our text paints a picture of a king who comes to make all things new, who comes to fill the whole earth with his glory, not just our hearts, certainly our hearts, but more than just our hearts. So what does that have to do with you and me? How do we play a part in this glorious future kingdom? Which leads to our second point, the characters in the kingdom. In the kingdom. As we've noted, our text exists before the arrival of King Jesus, this future king that Solomon is praying for. He's crying out for God to send. But brothers and sisters, we do not have to cry out, do we? King Jesus has come. Christ has come and he has established his kingdom. When he was crucified on the cross and he rose from the dead and he ascended into heaven, what did he do? He sat down on his throne. King Jesus is on his throne right now. That's where he sits. Jesus is king. But we look out and we read this text and we see a disconnect, right? Because Jesus is king, and yet the world is still full of poverty and brokenness. We can walk out this door, and we run into homelessness, into, into uh, mental illness, into prostitution and drug addiction. And so the kingdom is not fully here yet, right? King Jesus is on his throne, but the kingdom is not yet here. And here's where we enter into the story. I think World War II is very illustrative in, in understanding our position kingdom. I've heard it said before that we as Christians now live 
in between D-Day and V-Day. So for those of you who've forgotten your uh, world history, I'm going to remind you. So D-Day is the day when we, uh, the Allied forces, took Normandy Beach. Okay, so Germany had occupied Europe, and D-Day is when this decisive victory in World War II, where we took the beaches of Normandy, and, it, and by doing so, we created a way where we could get our troops onto continental Europe and then ultimately stop Hitler. Okay, so that's D-Day, the decisive victory. And what's interesting about D-Day is that many people will say that it was clear at that point that the war was over. Once we had taken Normandy Beach, it was just a matter of time before Hitler fell, before Nazi Germany was defeated. However, we all know that the war did not end on that day. Okay, we celebrate now what is V-Day, so V-Day, May 8th, 1945. A year later, we finally, our troops finally made it to Berlin. We finally arrived in Berlin and, and, and put an end to Nazi Germany. Okay, so do you, got, do you guys see the parallels there? We exist between D-Day and V-Day. On the cross, Jesus came and he had a decisive victory over Satan and over death. He conquered death on the cross. And he went and he sat down next to the Father in heaven. That's D-Day. And the war is over. Satan is doomed. He has no chance. The victory has been sealed. And yet we walk outside and we see all this brokenness and we see it in here, right, in our own hearts, if we're honest. There's still so much of the fall that still exists. And so V-Day has not yet come. Jesus Christ is coming back and he will put an end to all of that. So we exist between D-Day and V-Day. We exist now in this space where Christ has, has made the decisive victory, but he hasn't yet returned. So what do we do in that space? What do we do? This, this is critical for the way we understand our role as Christians. What do we do in that space between D-Day and V-Day? This picture, Psalm 72, has painted a picture of what is to come, right? We know where we're going. We know what the kingdom of God looks like. And so now we go to King Jesus, and he instructs us on what we do in between D-Day and V-Day. Listen to these. I'm going to read three passages to you. John 14, 12, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. John 17, 18, this is Jesus talking to God. He says, As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And then in Acts 1, 8, these are Jesus' last words to his disciples. He says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So what's the message? What is Jesus saying to us? What is our role in this space? He says, be my witnesses. Do what I was doing. Complete the work that I started. Enter into this rescue mission for this world that's gone awry. Bring in my kingdom to bear wherever you are. He is inviting us into this redemptive work. He's inviting us into this mission that he started. I don't know if you've ever wondered why uh, we here at, at Christ Central are so stuck on, if you will, focused on, passionate about, ministry to the poor, to the least of these. 
Psalm 72 has your answer because it, it is critical. It is a key integral part of the mission of Jesus Christ. It's his mission. It's not ours. He is passionate about the plight of the poor. He is passionate about bringing his kingdom to bear, to bringing flourishing to all people. Our job as the church is not simply to tell people about Jesus. It is absolutely that. But it's more. It's more than just giving them the gospel. It is bringing flourishing into their life through the gospel and through redemptive works that we're going to talk about here in a second. What dignity God has given us. What dignity that he would invite us into his grand mission to save and redeem this world. Isn't that beautiful? That he invites us into that space. And our job becomes, listen to this, to set up kingdom outposts. That's what we do as a church. We press forward into enemy territory and we set up kingdom outposts where King Jesus is king. That's what we're doing. Can you think about, again, World War II? Have you guys have seen movies about this. When the Allied troops would make it to a new city and they would capture that city back, and there would be these spontaneous celebrations. Oftentimes there would be a parade that would just erupt because these people were set free. They were brought back to the way of living that they were longing for, they were hoping for. Brothers and sisters, when we enter into the community That should be our posture. We come in to set up a kingdom outpost and to bring freedom and flourishing. The community should celebrate when we arrive. Amen? Because we come to bless them. We come to set them free and strengthen them and encourage them to to usher in King Jesus and his kingdom. Which leads us to our third and final point. How do we do it? How do we do that? How do we set up these kingdom outposts? How do we enter into the community in such a way that brings flourishing and hope and new life? How do we set up this new world order? I want to give you practical application here. I want want you to walk away with some practical application. This is heavy, hard stuff, but I want to leave you with some really simple practical application. The first one of those applications is to listen. Look again at verse 12 with me. It says, for he delivers the needy when he calls, the poor and him who has no helper. It may sound overly simplistic, um, but it's what the text says. What did King Jesus do? He listened to the cries of the people, and he responded when they cried out. You may have wondered why we at Christ Central don't have a ton of programs going uh, for the poor here in Durham. And the reason that is, is because uh, our focus is listening. Uh, so often the church enters in, and we from the outside come in and say, this is what you need, and I'm going to bring it to you. And we come in with this paternalistic, self-righteous mess, and we actually don't do any good. But what Jesus does is the exact opposite. He listens to the cries of the people, and he responds to their cries. And so our posture as a church is to listen to the community, to hear what their needs are, where are they hurting, and then we respond to that. And we respond not by coming in and taking over and and dumping our resources on them. We respond by empowering and raising up and lifting people. That's that, that universal, eternal kind of redemption that's happening, something that will last So what does that mean for you and I? That's what the church is doing, but how do we individually enter that? I just want to challenge you to listen. 
I want to challenge you to build relationships with those who have need. To build relationships with the least of these in the community. I want you to get to know them. And I realize that that is scary. Can we be honest? Because when we do that, we enter into a space where we have no idea what we're doing, right? There are going to be questions that are asked of you and things that are talked about that you're not going to know what to do with. It's scary, it's risky, but it's what Christ has called us to. We enter into people's lives and we listen and we acknowledge, I don't know what I'm doing. I don't really know what to offer. I just want to be in relationship with you. So I challenge you to take that risk within reason to enter into the lives of the people in this city. Listen. Listen to them. Second point of application is that we need to begin to see and embrace the dignity of humanity. Listen to verse 14. From oppression and violence he redeems their life and precious is their blood in his sight. What's motivating God in, in bringing about this kind of kingdom where all people flourish? It's right there in verse 14. And precious is their blood in his sight. God loves deeply his people, his creation. We are created in the image of God, which means each one of us has worth and value and dignity. We are precious to God. What if it was, what would it be like if we as a church began to walk around this community and look with God's eyes out on the community and see people with that dignity? When I walk up to someone that I recognize, that is a person who was made in the image of God, and God thinks they're precious. He thinks they're beautiful. And then I can begin to see that these people who maybe I've never interacted with before are so beautiful, and they actually have so much to offer, even to me. Even to me. Share a story with you guys. Just... Uh, this week, a lady who's become a friend of mine, she blew me away. Uh, she does not have much in terms of finances. Um, she's kind of struggling to get her life back in order. But what, she, what she did this week, what she's been doing all week is she's been, um, I think the word is crocheting, crocheting a blanket for my son. And I got to see it yesterday. It's almost done, and it is beautiful. I mean, the, the craftsmanship is phenomenal. And I didn't ask her to do this. I didn't bring this up. She just, out of the goodness of her heart, wanted to bless me and love my family. And it just hit me so hard. Someone, she could have sold this blanket for I don't know how much, but she just wanted to give it to me and to my family. And it was just something, it, it hit me so hard. And, and what's, what's important there is I have to position myself in where I'm able and willing to receive, Right? I have to recognize her dignity and realize she has so much to offer. And I will cherish that blanket. And my son will cherish that blanket. Isn't that beautiful? What a beautiful person that's here on this earth. And we can miss it. We can look right past that and not see that this is a person that is made in the image of God. So we first listen and we second see the dignity in God's creation. And lastly, we embrace the depth of our own, of our own poverty. Embrace the depth of our own property. Brothers and sisters, the only way we'll be able to bring about holistic flourishing in Durham is to begin to see ourselves as incredibly poor and needy. 
We have to recognize that you and I are poor and needy and desperately in need of a Savior. King Jesus came to you and I, not because we're special, we like to think that, not because we were well-dressed or we had a lot to offer. We want to claim that, right? King Jesus came to you and I because he loved us. And the, the definition of poverty is, is one who has, many, has needs, cannot take care of themselves, and who doesn't have anything to bring to the table. That would be like an extreme definition of poverty. And the only way you can begin to bring flourishing into this community is when you begin to realize that is you. You have many needs. You are incredibly broken. You bring nothing to the table, but Christ comes anyway to rescue you. Amen? That's who we are. That's who I am. I am a mess. I am selfish. I am quick-tempered. I'm irritable. Gosh, some of you guys even probably saw that this morning. I was driving around town behind, and I got irritable. I'm just a mess. I just don't bring a whole lot to the table, but Jesus loves me. He's adopted me. He's brought me into his family, and he sends me out to do likewise. Why? I don't know. He's just awesome like that. He loves me so much. I want you to listen to this quote. The deeper we grow in the spirit of Jesus Christ, the poorer we become. The more we realize that everything in life is a gift, the tenor of our lives becomes one of humble and joyful thanksgiving. Awareness of our poverty and ineptitude, the word means lack, causes us to rejoice in the gift of being called out of darkness into wondrous light and translated into the kingdom of God's beloved Son. Brothers and sisters, we are a mess. We're just beggars who have been given bread by King Jesus, and we go out into the community as beggars, showing people where the bread is. Amen? That's our job. That's our role. I'm going to close with this quote by B.B. Warfield. Sorry, there's a lot of quotes here, but these guys say it better than I can. This is a charge for us, and he's talking about our money, but I want you to think about it in terms of your whole life. Now, dear Christians, some of you pray night and day to be branches of the true vine, You pray to be made all over in the image of Christ. If so, you must be like him in giving. Though he was rich, yet for your sakes, our sakes, he became poor. Objection one, my money is my own, or my life is my own. Answer, Christ might have said, my blood is my own, my life is my own. Then where should we have been? Objection two, the poor are undeserving. Answer, Christ might have said, there are, they are wicked rebels. Shall I lay down my life for these? I'll give it to the good angels. But no, he left the 99 and came after the lost. He came after you and me. He gave his blood for the undeserving. Objection three, the poor may abuse it. Answer, Christ might have said, yea, with far greater truth. Christ knew thousands would trample his blood under their feet, that most would despise it, that many would make it an excuse for sinning more, yet he gave his own blood. Oh, my dear Christians, if you would be like Christ, give much, give often, give freely to the vile and the poor and the thankless and the undeserving. Christ is glorious and happy, and so will you be. It's not your money I want, but your happiness. Remember his own word. It is more blessed to give than to receive. 
Psalm 72 paints a beautiful picture of, of Jesus' own prayer. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. May that be our prayer, Christ Central, and may it be our life. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we are the poor, the needy. We are those who had nothing to offer and needed much from you. And you intervened in our life because you love us, because we have dignity that you see that we often miss. Father, we need to rest in that beautiful truth that for our sakes you became poor so that we might become immeasurably wealthy. And would that truth land in our hearts and would it compel us to live humbly, to live with generosity and gratitude, to seek to set up kingdom outposts all over this city? Would we enter in listening to those who are in need? Would we enter in with the posture of humility, bringing empowerment and hope just like you have done for us and you continue to do for us? Father, would you use this message to compel us, to drive us, to drive us out. Lord, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name, amen.